Hello, I'm Michael Calori. I'm an editor here at Wired, and you are listening to the Gadget Lab podcast. I am joined, as always, by my co-hosts, Ariel Pardes. Hello. And Lauren Good. Happy holidays. <laughs> this is the podcast where we take you through the top tech topics of the week and break down the gadgets, apps, and services that you need to know about. But it's not just a show about gadgets. It's about our relationship with them and how they impact our lives. And what a year it has been for examining how tech is impacting our lives, right? We'll spend the first part of the show doing just that. And we're actually going to try to distill the year in tech into one word or three words, one from each of us. And later in the show, we'll have an interview with the tech entrepreneur Bryn Putnam, who is trying to revolutionize the way you work out at home. Uh, just in time for those New Year's resolutions you won't keep, most likely. But first, <laughs> let's talk about the year that was. Ariel, why don't you start? What is the word that you feel best sums up 2018? So I thought long and hard about this. And I have to say that 2018 in tech was not a very optimistic year, especially for us here at Wired. There was a lot of dismal, disappointing stuff in the news. Um, the major companies that we write about had some very challenging years. Um, so the word that I have chosen is reckoning. 2018, the year of reckoning. And the reason I chose that is because I think in past years, we've been very idealistic about technology, about what it can do, about the power of these big companies. Um, but we've also been pretty blissfully ignorant about how this tech works and the consequences. So there always comes a time when we have to account for our actions, settle our debts. And we saw a great deal of that happening this year in tech. So just like a brief rundown of some things that came to mind for me were like, um, the FDA cracked down on Juul, the e-cigarette company, uh, which was marketing to teenagers. There was the SEC crackdown on Elon Musk for tweeting about taking Tesla public. Um, there was the EU legislation GDPR and the California law on data protections, which were both historic and sweeping pieces of legislation about how personal data can be used by these big companies. Um, but then there was also this really big trend of employees at major tech companies sort of protesting and speaking out about the ways that companies are doing business. So a few examples just from the summer are Microsoft employees pushing back against the company's work with U.S. Immigrations and Customs Enforcement. There was Amazon employees protesting the company providing its facial recognition services to law enforcement. Google employees protesting the company's contract um, to provide AI to the Department of Defense. That one's called Project Maven. Mm -hmm. And all this backlash kind of worked. Like we saw for the first time, I think, in a, in a sort of grand scale, uh, tech engineers and employees saying, we don't want to build stuff that we don't think is good for the country or for the world or for technology. And it really forced a lot of these companies to reconsider their policies. So that seems pretty big to me. I think the era of move fast and break things is, is over for now. I mean, we can consider how many things were actually broken this year, like people's trust, democracy, and so on. Mm. Um, and I think that pushes us into 2019 in a, in a kind of good way that we're starting to examine the consequences of the things we build um, because of the reckoning. That's a 
very good word. Yeah, I have to say, I really admire how you managed to bring that back to a positive because it was a year of reckoning. <laughs> and yet the fact that some of the employees speaking out against what tech companies are, are working on and how they're deploying their technology and actually having an impact, uh, to me, seems like it's positive. So, Lauren, what's your word? My word is oops. That's it. Just oops with an exclamation point on the end of it. Because there were a lot of things that were oops this year, and this is not even all of them, but just a quick rundown. I think the most obvious is Facebook. In March, uh, reports from the New York Times and Guardian revealed that Cambridge Analytica, a data analytics firm that worked with President Donald Trump, had harvested the personal information of around 50 million Facebook users without permission. Facebook knew about that breach in 2015. They demanded Cambridge Analytica delete the data at the time. It didn't exactly happen. This one is just ongoing. In August, an AP investigation found that Google services on Android phones and on iPhones store your location data, even if you've gone into settings and specifically set your privacy settings not to do this. Um, I mean, Google has gotten into hot water because of GDPR, which Ariel brought up earlier. Then in October, Google said it was going to shut down Google Plus. And on the same day, the Wall Street Journal reported that there had been this terrible Google Plus bug that ex you know, had revealed the profiles of a bunch of users. Um, Apple had some issues with its hardware, most notably the MacBook, which just, I feel like we could do a whole podcast on the MacBook and how I think the last really great MacBook was many years ago at this point. But there were issues with MacBook keyboards. Apple actually decided that they were going to do a repair program, a free repair program for the keyboards on MacBook and MacBook Pro models. Um, we can thank Casey Johnston from The Outline, by the way, for writing about these keyboard issues. Um, then Apple shipped new MacBook Pros this summer, and then afterwards, a bunch of pros went on YouTube and said they discovered a bug. They were being throttled. The laptops were being throttled. Um, and then actually, just a couple of weeks ago, I got an email from Apple, and a bunch of other people did too, closing out the year with emails saying that a limited number of MacBook Pros um, with solid-state drives have an issue that may result in data loss and failure of the drive. So now you're supposed to go in and get this drive replaced, and it just seems like Man, what an oops, you know? I mean, there are like a lot of really big privacy issues happening for sure. And I think ultimately those are more consequential. Some of the things that Ariel, you talked about earlier, but you know, Apple makes really great premium hardware and that's what they're known for. And you pay that premium because you expect certain things to work a certain way. And I think the MacBook Pro was, was kind of an oops this year. And then Amazon, now Amazon has gotten a lot of well-deserved flack this year for you know, the way it treats workers and fulfillment centers. And then let's not forget about the HQ2 competition. But on the consumer side, I think one of the oops that got a lot of attention this year was when an Alexa-equipped device recorded a Portland couple's conversation and sent the recorded conversation to an employee of the husband of the couple. It was it got a lot of attention, of course, because millions of people now have Alexa in their home and are worried that it's picking up on those private conversations when you, like, come home and say something that's not exactly nice. Of course, I, wish, I will say this. I always say nice things about my coworkers. So I am not worried about Alexa picking up on conversations and sending them to people I work with. However, this is like a nightmare scenario for a lot of people. Amazon had explained it by saying that Alexa had picked up on like a word and a background conversation. It had triggered the recording. Um, it's just the kind of thing that like, you know, people, it was an oops. 
it was an oops. And then there were others too. Twitter, of course, had some oops. Microsoft had some oops. But this was the year when tech companies either had mishaps and they admitted it right away and they tried to fix it, or they messed up a long time ago and were just finding out about it this year. And then the companies kind of dissembled when they were asked what they knew. So sometimes oops can be a genuine thing, like, oops, I did it and I really want to fix it. Or oops could be like, oops. And then, you know, you kind of try to sweep it under the rug. That's how I'm going to sum up 2018 at the year of oops. That's very apt. I think, you know, I think Twitter had more than one oops for sure this year. Yes. <laughs> yeah. One of my favorite memes of this year on Twitter is when uh, someone in Twitter's exec team, like Jack Dorsey, will tweet about a product release and then hundreds of people reply and say, but what about Nazis? <laughs> Oops. Right. Oops. Right. Or when Jack Dorsey went on a meditation vacation um, and extolled the virtues of Vipassana on Twitter uh, in Myanmar, which is a country that is having um, a lot of serious troubles right now. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, oops. A lot of oops. That Myanmar incident that you just talked about, Lauren, mm -hmm. that actually uh, feeds into my word of the year. Mm -hmm. Uh, the word that I feel most accurately sums up 2018 is silence. This is silence on multiple levels. Most importantly, people have been asking for silence. People have been trying to take back quiet time from the devices and the services around them, right? So put down your phone, spend some quality time with things other than your electronic devices and calming of the mind. There has been uh, a lot of sort of talk and action around that this year. Um, also, you know, people have been asking for silence in the fact that they had talked to their gadgets all the time. You know, we've been talking about talking to gadgets. We've been experimenting with talking to gadgets. We've been predicting that we're going to be talking to gadgets. And we are talking more than ever to our things, to our phones, to our Amazon Echoes, to our Google Homes, to our Cortana <laughs> PCs. <laughs> But also, I think, you know, this is the year that we've really started to ask ourselves that this is really necessary if talking to things is actually the way forward or if it's just sort of weird. Um, I'm, you know, obviously cameras are a whole other issue, but I think that next year, 2019, is going to be the year that we have to come to terms of the fact that there's cameras pointed at us all the time if we haven't already. Um, but, you know, I just I feel like silence is really it's like a command. And it's like a request that we have been making uh, over this year, uh, just because there's sort of a lot of anxiety tied up around the fact that there's just too much going on. You know, there's too many notifications. Uh, there's too much news coming in. Uh, it's particularly too much bad news coming in. And everybody just kind of wants to switch everything off more so than they have in the recent past. So uh, for me, that is the word of the year, silence. But, you know, also... Jack Dorsey going on a silent meditation retreat for, for 10 days really sealed the deal for me in December. It's like a perfect <laughs> metaphor for the year in tech is, is Jack Dorsey spending 10 days meditating in, in Myanmar. Like it sums up the whole year. Right. Like things are burning down on Twitter and you look to the leaders of the platforms and it's just you just kind of wonder where they went and what what is what is going on. It also sounds like what you're saying, Mike, is silence is aspirational. You said it can be a command, which is true, um, but it sounds like how you're describing it is like it's a goal in a lot of ways. 
I really think it is, you know, I mean, it is for me, you know, and a lot of people that I know. And I mean, we write about this all the time on Wired where, you know, there are always people looking for quiet and like, how do you just get away from just that, that thing in your pocket or that thing on your desk? And, you know, I think there's a lot of, a lot of like human anxiety tied up in that. Um, You know, we sort of feel like we've lost control of the technology and that it's creeping into too many different places in our lives. And we just kind of want to, want everything to sort of back up a little bit. So yeah, I do think it's aspirational. Um, I mean, of course, there are some people who've never been happier about the state of technology than it is right now. And I mean, those people are also they have perfectly valid opinions. Um, I just don't happen to be one. And I think, you know, if you're if you're looking around and you're observing sort of like what the zeitgeist is right now, it's uh, people people want to kind of a little bit less than what we've had. It does seem telling that even the major companies like Apple and Google, which make hardware and software that sort of is omnipresent in our lives. Like even they this year have introduced these major system-wide changes to help people reclaim some of that silence. So, mm-hmm. you know, ways to sort of turn do not disturb mode on your phone automatically or or ways to minimize the notifications that you're getting on a phone. Mm-hmm. Um, even they agree <laughs> that mm-hmm. silence could be useful in this day and age. Yeah, yeah. That's a very good point. Well, it's also beneficial to them to to for them to be a part of that conversation if people do start to seriously pull themselves away from certain devices or certain applications um, it's it's better for the companies to say well then you should use our dashboard or we should at least have a sense of how you're using this um, rather than having them you know find some really valuable useful third-party app that lets them just like check out of the iPhone for several hours a day, you know, or, or go to a dumb phone, which Ariel, you wrote about in the latest issue of Wired, which is a fantastic story. Everybody should go read. Um, but yeah. How, how optimistic or are you feeling optimistic at all about 2019 in the tech world? Uh, I am. I am. I think, you know, if there's something that we saw over the last year with everything that we're talking about, just the fact that people are sort of like waking up to some of the mechanisms that are happening behind the scenes on their favorite platforms, and they're sort of more aware than they used to be about the the sort of problems that technology introduces, introduces into their lives uh, when they use it too much or if they use it in a way um, that, you know, it's something that can be harmful. I think people are... The more that people recognize that and the more aware people are of that, then I think that's a place where we can improve from. So I am optimistic that, you know, we're sort of resetting some of the things, some of the dials that we've twisted a little bit too far to the right. We're sort of twisting back to the left now. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. I think it's telling that this year we saw Mark Zuckerberg and Sundar Pichai and Jack Dorsey and lots of other CEOs appearing before Congress explaining how their services work. Mm-hmm. I think it's telling that this year people started to ask, what is data and why should I care about where it goes? Um, I think a lot of things sort of reached a low point this year that's woken people up, as you said, about sort of what they're using and what it means. Um, and that feels valuable. I think, um, of course, I have more of a cautious, optimistic take, which is that uh, you'd like to think that those things would, would create changes in the year to come, but you kind of never know. Yeah, I think, well, yeah, I, th- I actually, I think you're right. I think that I'm optimistic, but I don't think much will necessarily change in 2019. I think that the questioning that's been going on both from consumers and from, well, members of Congress um, and just the people, I don't know, the, the people surrounding the industry, um, the questioning that's happening now is certainly 
set the ball rolling um, for, you know, deeper examination. But I think that that's going to be ongoing in 2019. I don't think like, I just don't, I don't know. I can't imagine that six months from now, all of a sudden um, we trolls are kicked off of platforms and our elections are no longer influenced by, uh, you know, by bad actors with bad intentions and that um, all of a sudden tech becomes sustainable outside of ad driven models uh, unless they're making and selling really expensive goods, you know, so it's, I don't know. I don't, I don't think it's going to change immediately, but I do think that right now change is being affected slowly, but surely. I certainly hope so. Well, Lauren, thank you for the, um, for turning my positive prediction into something that is a little more dour. I appreciate it. <laughs> um, anyway, Lauren, you have a story in the January issue of Wired Magazine about a revolution that's happening in home fitness equipment. Uh, for this podcast, you had the opportunity to talk to Bryn Putnam, the founder and CEO of Mirror. Mirror is an internet-connected mirror that's the product. It's a mirror that sits in your home. That's why the company's called Mirror. And it live streams workout classes into your living room. It's sort of like the Peloton of mirrors, which is a string of words that I never thought I would say. (laughs) Anyway, let's have a listen with Lauren speaking to Bryn Putnam, the CEO of Mirror. Bryn, thank you so much for joining me today on the Gadget Lab podcast. For people who don't know, talk about what Mirror is, uh, because it's a very visual product, and obviously we're talking through an, an audio medium right now, so it's kind of hard to picture, I think, unless you've seen it. Talk about what it is and what it looks like. Yeah, uh, Mirror is a nearly invisible interactive home gym. It's a full-length mirror when it's off, and then when it's on, it streams live and on-demand fitness classes of every type. Cardio, weight training, yoga, Pilates, boxing bar stretching. Uh, what you see is yourself reflected, a live or on-demand instructor transmitted, your classmates, and then personalized metrics and tips. So I should note that I tried Mirror for a brief period of time a couple of months ago. Unfortunately, I didn't get to use it as much as I would like to have because I ended up traveling a lot shortly after I, I had it in my living room. But one of the things that I did when I first had it in my living room was I went up and started touching it because I think we're so accustomed to touch screens. Uh, Talk about the interaction method with Mirror and how you're supposed to, how it works basically. Yeah, so the Mirror is controlled by a companion phone app, which lets you browse for classes, uh, personalize every element on your Mirror screen, uh, such as selecting your music or adding headphones or heart rate monitor, and also track your progress. So there's no touch capability. Uh, the feeling was with sweaty fingers, you probably don't want uh, any touch capabilities on your Mirror. Yeah, it would get smudgy really quickly. Yeah. So you fire up the app, you you go through like a profile process like you would in any other fitness app um, and then you're you're casting the content to the mirror is that how it's working yeah so we have a full production studio that's actually based out of our office where we're streaming live classes pretty much every hour on the hour um, so you can join a live experience uh, or you can then access that same content on demand after it's aired but is the is the mirror itself actually what is connecting to the internet, pulling down the content from the cloud and streaming it, or are you casting it in some way from your phone? Yeah, so the mirror is pulling content from the cloud okay. and then displaying it to you, and you're uh, using your phone like a remote control, and so your phone pairs to your mirror via Wi-Fi, and then you're pairing your peripherals through Bluetooth. It's pretty wild when you first try it, because you do see yourself, but then all of a sudden this person, this avatar appears, yeah. and it kind of feels like they're talking to you, even though you know that they're like on a different plane, essentially. Yeah. 
Um, what's the reaction that you've gotten from people who, who are trying it for the first time? Yeah, it's funny. Um, our tagline is the future of fitness is now at your place. And um, that comes directly from the mouths of people who have looked at the mirror. I would say 99% of people, the first thing they say when they see it is like, this is the future or some iteration of that. Um, and I think that is the feeling. It's just this magical experience that uh, you sort of have to see to believe. Um, but when you see it, you feel this sort of like childlike wonder, like you're seeing something new, um, which is really exciting. How did you arrive at making a product like Mirror? Yeah, I, um, I guess for context, I've spent my entire adult career in the fitness space. Uh, I grew up as a professional dancer at the New York City Ballet when I was a teenager. I uh, got into fitness after graduating from college, really as a side gig uh, to make ends meet as a professional dancer. Um, when I retired, I went into fitness full time and opened a boutique studio called Refine Method and grew that business to three studios over the past eight years. Um, and then fast forwarding, I think my personal life sort of started to evolve. Uh, I was running a reasonably large business. I was uh, newly pregnant and started thinking about how I would personally work out at home. Um, but I didn't have the space or the desire to put a large piece of cardio equipment or weight equipment in my New York apartment. Um, I tried using apps or streaming content on my laptop, but found the experience to be really awkward, trying to look at a small screen while working out, and the quality of the content was uh, really poor. Um, and just through coincidence, we put a bunch of regular mirrors, you know, dumb mirrors, in our gyms at the time, and our clients said it was the best thing that we had done all year, was the ability to see their form and correct themselves, and also that there was this incredible motivation they got from seeing themselves working out with their classmates and their instructor on one single immersive display. Um, so I realized that we could basically build a gym within a mirror and uh, spun that off as a business at the end of 2016. And presumably you were comfortable yourself with working out in front of a mirror given your background. You probably spent a lot of time like correcting your own form. Yeah. So, I mean, how do you make that? I, and I see what you're saying about not wanting to just make another treadmill or something that's going to collect dust or essentially become become a coat hanger. But what was the actual moment when you made that connection between like mirrors, dumb mirrors in my studio and smart mirror future of fitness? Yeah, I mean, I think it's um, sometimes like the best ideas are kind of right in front of you. And I think uh, for me, I had spent, you know, six years at that point dissecting every single element of our fitness experience and trying to understand what made a good workout experience and the one thing that I hadn't really thought about was that I took the mirror for granted frankly because of my personal experience I just have always worked out with mirrors I view them as a vital part of um, having a good workout experience they're in every gym every class you go to for that reason um, but I think sort of hearing it from the mouths of our clients you know non-dancers I just realized that that was that missing link for me um, and all of the sort of ideas I've been having around how to bottle the other elements of the experience just really fit into that delivery platform. Were you concerned at all that you would turn off a potential customer or audience that doesn't like looking in the mirror? Yeah, in early iterations, we had a mirror off mode um, that actually turned off the reflection and had pure transmission. Um, but, you know, I think for us, we felt like part of kind of the um, philosophy of the product or the mission of the product is that we want you to look in the mirror and feel good about yourselves, that the mirror is often a tool that uh, is destructive. It's about criticism. And for me, that was often the case as a dancer. I looked in the mirror, and the first thing I did was pick myself apart. And so I think it was um, it's sort of an important part of our, our mission as a company 
to um, have people embrace the idea that when they look in the mirror, they should be giving themselves a high five rather than criticizing what they see. And by giving themselves a high five, you're, you're saying the avatars are giving them the high five. Yeah, and I think it's um, even just as simple as the own voice, your own voice in your head. When you get used to using the mirror as a tool to make yourself stronger, to um, you know see improvement, that kind of um, is a way of taking control of a piece of equipment that sometimes can have destructive impact and really using it for health and good. So you mentioned earlier working out with just tapes, videos, tapes, gosh, it sounds so like 1990s, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Streaming, if you will. Yeah. I've done that too. I've put YouTube on the TV and done a yoga class yeah. um, where people work out in front of their iPads or whatever it is. So you, you can get a pretty decent experience working out on a flat 2D screen these days. But it seems like the trend is increasingly moving towards this idea of giving a feedback loop. If you can connect something, if you can have people kind of reach through the screen that it's better in some way. Yep. Explain that, like explain that trend that's going on right now and, and why mirror is a part of that. Yeah, I mean I think um, that was part of what I realized kind of watching my own studio and trying to figure out how to translate it was what our instructors would do was they would announce an exercise and then they would give a beginner option and an advanced option and then they would spend the 60 seconds of the exercise physically running around the room to give people personalizations to the exercises to better fit injuries or preferences or goals. And so you had this human that was basically acting as a personalization algorithm in a way that was exhausting to watch, <laughs> to watch my teachers literally physically run around a class to say, you do a jumping squat, you do a stationary squat here, you take more weights, yeah, you're gonna stop, sit this one out. Um, and so I think videos have done that through, you always have in your traditional kind of jazzercise or Taibo environment, Sally on the left is gonna give the beginner option and Johnny on the right is gonna give the advanced option and that's kind of the schema for video content, but now technology can do that lift for us in a much better way. And so, um, that takes a kind of a deep understanding of the content and the client, which we have from decades of teaching real people. But once you sort of understand how to, how to personalize content for a wide variety of people, um, technology can do that lift for you and you can free up the person on the screen to focus on inspiration, encouragement, all of the elements that make a great shared experience. So Mirror is $1,500, right? And uh, there are some other connected fitness systems out there now. Peloton comes to mind, of course, you probably hear that comparison a lot. Yeah. Tonal is a smart weightlifting system. Yeah. These are all in the thousands of dollars. Peloton's tread, the new treadmill is $4,000, so it's pretty expensive. So I think people are looking at these and saying, okay, if I invest in one of these and then I pay the subscription fee for the content in order to stream all of these videos that you're making, is this supposed to replace my gym or is this supposed to supplement what I already do? What's, what's your pitch around that? Do you think this is supposed to replace people going, like, is it supposed to replace that human being running around the gym studio telling you, you know, how to fix your form? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I certainly didn't set out to create a gym replacement. I'm a gym owner. Um, however, I think what we're seeing from our members in terms of usage is people sometimes purchase the device viewing it as a supplement. It's something that they'll do when, you know, their kids are sleeping or they have a busy work travel week. Um, but ultimately, it's, uh, the experience is better. It is more personalized. It is more um, what you want when you want it tailored for you. 
and you remove all of the friction around starting, which is the biggest problem in fitness, which is just, can you get to the class? Um, how much will it cost? Uh, do you need to arrange childcare? And you, you take away all that friction and then people are starting to say, this is, this is better than the real life experience. And so we see sort of the usage shift such that Mirror is getting more share of their workout hours. Um, so I didn't set out to put myself out of business, but I would certainly be happy if I did. So you'd be happy if so many people were buying mirrors and using mirror subscription service that you no longer had a studio, effectively. Yeah, I would. To me, um, I want more people working out more consistently, and so for me, the idea is uh, the best way to kind of affect that behavioral change, which is really what the future is about: is behavioral change, is to make it as easy as possible for people to start and continue. And so making, you know, convenience is the top driver of that. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think if we can crack that nut, I would be very happy to put myself out of business. It's so true that if you put something basically between your bed and the coffee yeah. maker, you have no excuse not to use it. Yeah. And especially if you can do it quietly, like to your point when others in the household are sleeping. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that Peloton CEO John Foley has talked about is how the company has increasingly tried to up the social experience, right? Peloton is known for when you're taking a live streaming class that maybe there's a chance the instructor will give you a shout out because it's your 10th ride or whatever it is. But now they're recognizing more and more milestones. It might be your 250th ride. It might be that you went to 10 classes in a row. Um, you know, it's kind of like that little dopamine hit you get. There's a chance that there's gonna be a social interaction. And a mirror, you have social interactions. You have like emoji that you can send to somebody while you're working out. Talk yeah. about that idea of the social element um, because you're not getting it in real life. So you have to get it through the screen. Yeah. Is that an important part of mirror? Yeah, I mean, I think um, uh, kind of the foundation of uh, community for a lot of these products is often competition. Um, you're often using metrics to compare your performance to other people and for us we felt like that was not um, the foundation of our community experience that we were looking to build. I mean I think that there's you know one percent of people who will wake up every single day and always work out and get on their bike and go for their run and those people uh, oftentimes are attracted to competitive experiences and then there's the 99 percent of us who sort of struggle to get things in and stay consistent and I think for us, uh, a lot of it is about uh, personal progress, personal benchmarking, which um, to some degree are metrics. We use heart rate, we use attendance, um, but a lot of it is just about knowing that there are other people out there who are cheering you on. Um, so the ways that we do that is um, we, we try to cultivate relationships between our instructors and our community on the mirror platform and via social media through um, simple praise. And mm -hmm. the emoji is like a great tool for that just the ability for you to share how you're feeling at a moment and then have other people around you sort of celebrate that, that feeling. Um, so, you know, I think for us, community is about uh, shared experiences, not necessarily synchronous experiences or competitive experiences. So, and that encouragement is coming from other people who are taking the class or it's coming from the instructors? It's coming from both. So okay. you'll hear uh, a great interaction. I took a live class yesterday and the instructor um, Jaron, he has, he calls his, uh, his regulars Team 100 because we have a 100 emoji and he's, he welcomed someone who was joining for their 10th class and he said, come on Team 100, give him a 100 emoji mm -hmm. and you saw this whole flurry of emojis come up and, um, you know, now people will take that class on demand and they'll have that moment of feeling, wow, like that person has hit a milestone, I can hit a milestone too and there's people here who care about me showing up. 
Um, and then, you know, he took it to social media. He posted a picture of the person and, and shared it out wildly. So um, to me, that's, um, that's really special, a special community moment. Do you ever wonder if there's a dystopian side of all of these connected fitness devices finding their way into people's homes, being successful? I mean, really, you know, look at the success of Peloton, right? And, and it seems like the companies that are doing this, companies like your own that are in this space are onto something. The convenience is great. But what happens if we become a society where we really do no longer go to go to your studio and see people in real life and chat with friends and grab coffee afterwards? Um, what, you know, are we all just going to end up like in our living rooms working from home and then working out from home and then like getting our blue apron delivered to us at night and never leaving home to eat? I mean, like, you know, is it, like what does that mean to actually have your gym experience be behind a screen at home? Yeah, I mean, uh, to me, I think that's that's a luxury for people for whom the real life experience is working. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't think that is the norm. I think there's many people for whom public fitness is incredibly uncomfortable. They feel um, they feel like they are out of shape or they feel like they are uncoordinated and don't understand the movements that are happening. There's many people who just simply can't make the transit to these experiences work and they become um, unhealthy and, and demotivated. So um, I think this is about you know choice and mm-hmm. people should have, um, should have access. And so we're providing choice and access. Uh, and uh, you know I think you will always have the ability to go out into the world and seek out real life human interaction, but you shouldn't have to do that in order to be healthy. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. Or someone maybe works out enough at home where they get to the point where they're comfortable then going out and doing more activities that might involve social interaction and that sort of thing. That's also one of my favorite yeah. trends that I see. People enter the platform um, saying they like uh, cardio and are advanced. And then you see they're trying boxing, level one boxing classes. And you reach out and they say they think they're uncoordinated, but they've always wanted to try boxing. And you know, we had an 81-year-old woman who said she took her first boxing class on her 81st birthday. She's not going to the gym. She's not going into a group class, but she tried a new thing and she felt good about herself. Um, so, if people view that as dystopian, then so be it. But to me, it's about people exploring you know, in the comfort of their own home. One of the things that you had mentioned earlier, when you and I had an, an interview prior to this for the latest issue of Wired, which I recommend you all go check out, was that you said that Mirror is a media company, it's a content company. Talk about that because I think people would look at you in first glance and think you're a hardware company. No, I mean, I think, um, you know, hardware is obviously super important because we've created a unique channel to stream content into your home. Um, and getting the hardware right was obviously crucial for us for launch. We needed to create something beautiful that you'd be proud to display in your living room. You know, unlike a treadmill or weight machine, we're in people's bedrooms, we're in the middle of people's living rooms, so we really had to be to be sleek and, and high quality. But ultimately, the success of our community lies on, uh, on our content and how well we're able to create um, high quality content experiences. Um, so in terms of where we're allocating team resources and, and where we really believe the future of our business lies, it's, it's within our content. What does the future look like for Mirror? Is it do I show up to you know a different city on a trip sometime, and I go to the gym there in the hotel, and the mirror is connected. I mean, are you planning on being on all kinds of mirrors? Yeah, I mean, I think um, for us, we're starting with 
the content that uh, we know the best and makes the most sense uh, for, for our medium, which is fitness content. But in the short term, there's wellness adjacent content, physical therapy, meditation, things that make a lot of sense for our audience. Um, and then ultimately from there, we anticipate that will be part of your daily ritual. So you'll use your mirror to view your calendar, curate your images, plan your travel, um, chat with friends, um, browse top fashion, uh, make beauty selections. Uh, so I think once we learn more about our audience and what makes an immersive interactive experience for them, uh, we'll have the ability to expand into other content verticals. And it seems like then you're, it's a natural segue to commerce too. I mean, you're talking about picking clothes and, and beauty products and it um, sounds like that would be a portal uh, for lack of a better term since now Facebook has co-opted the word portal um, <laughs> but it sounds like you know there would be a commerce play there uh, yeah in early 2019 you'll be able to shop the workout experience via mirror so uh, when the workout experience ends uh, you'll be able to learn more about what your instructor is wearing any products or experiences they may have mentioned during the experience uh, we're already working with Carla Welch, who's a top stylist, to um, help better merchandise the experience so that people uh, are um, experiencing that delight of discovering new things through the workout. Um, and that's definitely part of how we are expanding our community. So it sounds like the future of connected fit fitness isn't just about connected fitness. It's actually about it becoming a sort of connected portal into all these different facets of your home yeah, and your life. Yeah, to me that's the difference between um, a connected product and a connected platform. So, you know, I think you have one category of bikes, weight machines, um, treadmills, uh, often with screens or tablets attached, where you're creating sort of the next generation of Nordic tracks. It's equipment you already know, and then adding instruction onto that. For us, it's about creating the components of an immersive experience, and then we will always serve the content that best suits the needs of our audience. And uh, today we feel like fitness is a good fit, but that may evolve over time, and our content will evolve too. Bryn, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks it's been a pleasure talking. All right, we're back now to wrap up this, the last Gadget Lab show for the year of 2018 with the year's final round of recommendations. Ariel, will you please go first? Yes, absolutely. So I would like to recommend a piece of journalism. Um, it is the cover story of the latest issue of The Atlantic, and it's called Why Are We So Angry by Charles Duhigg. Um, it's sort of like a meditation on anger and its purpose for us as humans, but it also traces the role of anger in America over time um, in this very interesting informative, fascinating, and highly narrative way. So you go back to sort of Cesar Chavez using moral outrage as a way to influence labor policy in California in the 60s. Uh, you go to the 2016 presidential election. You talk about um, studies in the 70s that sort of tried to understand how people in small towns used anger to experience catharsis with their neighbors and families and friends. Um, it's just a very fascinating, broad look at the role of anger in America. Um, and is surprisingly more optimistic than you would think about where we're at now and how we can sort of dig ourselves out of this angry, angry, terrible place that we find ourselves in all the time. Um, it's just beautifully written, uh, beautifully designed if you happen to get it in print, um, and a really interesting 
interesting read and I think a good thing to sort of cap the year off with so that we can all hopefully be a little less angry or more productively angry mm. in 2019. Duhigg is having a pretty good run right now because in Absolutely. addition to that story, he's also written the um, the the big feature that we just published on uh, Elon Musk and the working conditions at Tesla. Correct. Yeah, that's a story about anger, I would say. There's um, a great line in that story which says, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase this, but something to the effect of um, Elon Musk is like a mad genius. And it, he used to be 95% genius and like 5% mad. And that ratio has over time switched. <laughs> um, that piece is also amazing. Lots of anger, lots of insight, beautifully written. Mike, what's yours? Uh, my recommendation is a podcast. Uh, this is a podcast. It's called Broken Record, and it's a new podcast hosted by Malcolm Gladwell. Um, I realize that's a, a name that what might turn some people off, but I am one of those people who generally, you know, has enough Malcolm Gladwell in my life just by, you know, reading a couple hundred words every month. Uh, but this podcast has really, like, you know, he's the host He's very good at it, and it's gotten me into it. So regardless of how you feel about Sir Malcolm, I can recommend this podcast, Broken Record, because it's about music. Now, this podcast first showed up about a year ago. There was a pilot. I think Eminem was on it. Um, I can barely remember because it was so long ago. And then I subscribed to it, and it just sat there in my subscriptions, and I never deleted it. And then about a month ago, new um, episodes started showing up. So the first season is finally launched uh, and it's very good so far. It's really broad, diverse conversations with people from all different aspects of uh, the music industry. And it's a if they're a producer, they talk about what a producer does and how that works. If it's a songwriter, they talk about the songwriting process. If it's a historian, they talk about the importance of archiving uh, and, you know, sort of building a permanent record of an artist's work. So um, the, the first episode, which is great, great place to start, is an interview with Rick Rubin, uh, the famous producer, uh, did a lot of work in hip-hop and metal in the 1980s, was responsible for the Beastie Boys and Slayer. He was also responsible for Johnny Cash's comeback. Uh, he was also responsible for the uh, late career renaissance of Neil Diamond uh, and uh, what's his name, Donovan. So he has a lot of stories. He also lives in Malibu, and there's a whole section that was recorded while the fires were happening in Malibu. So it's a really interesting place to start there. Um, also, Malcolm Gladwell's co-host, who does a lot of the interviews, his name is Bruce Headlam. Uh, Bruce Headlam talks to Roseanne Cash, uh, to Rufus Wainwright, who's a singer-songwriter who's really fantastic. Uh, the most recent episode features a guy named Dave Hill, who's a metal historian, and it's sort of like a weird dive into the history of Norwegian black metal, which doesn't matter if you don't if you care about Norwegian black metal or not. It's just fascinating. So that's my recommendation. Broken record. The new podcast hosted by Malcolm Gladwell. That sounds awesome. Cool. It's really neat. That's super cool. Also, you know, if you don't love Norwegian black metal, you should really give it another chance. Yeah. <laughs> right after you give Swedish prog rock a try. Yeah. I, I recently got the hot tip from our colleague, Matt Simon, that when you're frantically writing on a deadline, there is nothing better than listening to metal. And I can confirm that this is true. You will write faster and more anxiously than ever before. <laughs> yep. Nothing brings on those action verbs like blast beats. Yep. Lauren, what's your recommendation? My recommendation borrows from Mike's word of the year, uh, which was silence for those of you who so quickly forgot. And this is about taking a little time for yourself 
I recommend that if you are not yet using the screen time, screen, I forget, they're all different names, but some variation of screen time. If you're not using that on your smartphone right now, you should. You should. And in fact, our wonderful writing fellow, uh, Pia Serres, wrote some guides to how to do this um, on Wired.com. So go check them out. But you should you should at least opt into using these screen time dashboards on your phone to get a sense, just to take your temperature of how much you've been using your phone. And then don't expect that's going to cure everything because that's like expecting your smartwatch to make you a marathon runner. But get a sense of how you're doing. And then from there, maybe work to take some breaks from your phone from time to time, or at least use your smartphone as a utility, you know, use it for maps and to take photos when you're with family and friends and to communicate. But I don't know, maybe try to cut back a little bit on the pass lo- the, the passive um, sort of mindless browsing. And I know that's something that I really want to do because when I have used these screen time features, I've been shocked by the amount of time I've been spending on social networks and other just, I don't know, unnecessary apps, unproductive apps. And I'm really going to try to cut back in the new year as much as I can, even though sometimes our work requires us to be on those apps. But yeah, that's my recommendation. It's, it's kind of a soft recommendation, but it, it's, my recommendation is just to reevaluate your relationship with your stuff, use the tools that are available to you, and then maybe see how you feel. Lauren, have you been able to find any way to cut back using Twitter or Instagram or Facebook um, short of just deleting them from your phone? No, I really haven't. No, I just I, I haven't opened Facebook as much, I don't think, in recent months, even though the app is still on my phone. And I think it's just because I've it's become less interesting to me. And also they're just giving you notifications for everything these days. Like someone just writes on someone else's wall and they notify you and I'm, I'm onto it now. So I just don't check it as much. Um, Instagram, Twitter is probably my worst offender. I still use Twitter a lot. I did put Twitter into night mode, so it's darker, but, um, I thought that might make a difference. Maybe I need to go all grayscale on my phone. I saw somebody in a subway the other day who was all grayscale on their phone and I was like, I wonder how that's working for them. You know, so maybe I need to do that and maybe I just need to delete apps. But yeah, I'm really just I just want to try to be more thoughtful. I want to I want to like not sit there and browse mindlessly or like use it to read instead. I save article like I just saved the Why Are We So Angry article by Charles Duhigg that Ariel mentioned. I just saved that in my Insta paper. So the next time I'm bored on a train, that's what I'm going to try to read instead of Twitter. Thank you, Ariel. You cured me. You're welcome. Speaking of Pia Serres, this is her last podcast episode with us. And Pia has been an amazing colleague, so wonderful to work with. Not only a fantastic writer who has written a lot for the gear section in the past six months that she's been here, but also has been editing and producing this podcast. So we're really going to miss her. It's true. Pia is a beautiful, bright, shining star whose presence cannot be replaced. Pia, we're really going to miss you. The show sounds great. The show is great. And it's because you are great and you're very good at what you do. So thank you for your six months of being behind the boards and wearing the headphones and listening to us and editing us and making us sound better. Also, Pia, Pia, just I hope you remember me someday when um, we're all like applying for jobs to work under you. So it's been it's been a real pleasure working with you. You have a bright career of journalism ahead of you.
It's true. We will all work for Pia one day. Even everybody listening, you're all going to be working for Pia. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening, not just today, but all year. Uh, as we said earlier, this is our final Gadget Lab podcast of the year, but we'll be back with more Gadget Lab goodness in 2019. You can find all of us on Twitter. Um, Ariel is Pardesoteric. I am Snackfite. Lauren Good is Lauren Good with an E at the end. Uh, and Pia Saris is La Pia en Rose. Spell it like a French person would. And you could tweet at all of us at The Gadget Lab by tweeting at Gadget Lab on Twitter. We'll be back next year with more goodness. Bye-bye. Happy New Year. I think we should go on to our next segment in the show because that's a good place uh, to segue because Lauren, as you wrote about in the most recent issue of Wired, this is the January issue of Wired, uh, home exercise equipment is becoming even more connected, which means it's also in danger of slow. This is a terrible transition. <laughs>